Support for The Interchange comes from Trina Solar, a global leader in PV modules and smart energy solutions. Trina Solar is committed to delivering reliable and fully bankable solar technology to the entire world. Scientists at Trina Solar's State Key Laboratory of PV Science and Technology work to break new solar cell efficiency records year after year. In addition to groundbreaking R&D, Trina is transforming the solar industry with the launch of its Trina Pro all-in-one utility solution, the next major step forward for the sector. You can download a free guidebook for the Trina Pro solution in the show notes of this episode. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric Company. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Conventional wired approaches may still be viable, but they're not always the best solution. Today, non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power, and they can be designed for your unique needs. SNC Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over 100 years. SNC helps utilities and commercial customers find the best solutions to meet their energy needs. Learn more at snc.com slash NWA. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a managing director at Energy Impact Partners, a venture capital fund focused on the energy transition. And uh, this week, autonomous electric vehicles are going off-roading. For all the hype around autonomous vehicles, um, we're clearly still in the very early innings of the rollout of this world-changing transformational technology. But while most of the attention, I think, that has been focused on the world of autonomous vehicles has been and is still being paid to the Waymos and the Zooks of the world who are trying to build fully autonomous passenger vehicles that'll drive around on public roads, there's actually an entirely separate category or really a bunch of separate categories that are being created uh, that are in some ways moving faster and arriving sooner, but share many of the same benefits and characteristics that we're seeing on roads. This other category is comprised of similarly autonomous vehicles. In fact, some of them are reaching higher levels of autonomy sooner. And they're similarly basically all electric vehicles, but they don't ride on public roads. Instead, they're in shipping yards, they're in distribution warehouses, they're in mining operations, they're on campuses, they're in farms. And it's, I think, somewhat underappreciated how big that shift could be in aggregate, both in the operations of all of these places and on the benefits of electrification of all the equipment that will become autonomous on them. There are companies being formed across all of these categories, startups that are raising significant capital to scale their operations. Just a couple of weeks ago, a company called Outrider, which is building autonomous electric vehicles for truck yards, raised a $65 million venture capital round. There's other companies like Monarch that are building autonomous electric tractors, a company called Built Robotics, building autonomous electric bulldozers, and on and on and on. So it's a really interesting emerging space that I think has not gotten its due attention, particularly in the world of people who care a lot about electrification and autonomy as kind of a side benefit. So we want to understand it. What's happening in this space? Why is it moving as fast as it is? And what are the roadblocks still ahead? And I'm very fortunate to have with me Allison Malik to 
talk about it with. Allison is the executive director for the Commission on the Future of Mobility, which aims to reshape transportation policy globally. She's also the founder and CEO of Middle Third, which is a boutique consultancy focused on mobility strategy. And she has a ton of historical experience, both on the electric vehicle side, on the corporate venture and strategy side at GM, and then perhaps most salient to the conversation today as the co-founder and COO of a company called May Mobility, which is one of the early leaders in autonomous electric vehicles that do drive on public roads, but as I'm sure we'll talk about, a particular type of public roads. Allison, welcome. Thank you so much, Shale. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Likewise. Um, let's start by spending a little bit more time on your background and particularly how you uh, ended up in this autonomous vehicle world. What what led you to get into it? And then, you know, what's been your impression of how that space has evolved during the time that you've been engaged? It's a great question. So I started my career as an engineer at GM working in electric vehicles um, back in 2008. So really riding the wave of change uh, in technology that that brought to the automotive industry. And I I had a lot of fun. So I was, was working on products like the Chevy Volt and the Chevy Spark EV, the predecessor to the Bolt. And there was a lot of innovation happening real time in the products that we were putting out. Um, And that I really enjoyed that experience and wanted within the industry to keep getting to to work on those types of projects that we didn't know how to do. And that was around the time that I, I transitioned over to GM's corporate venture arm. And while I was in corporate venture, we invested across different technologies that would support GM's uh, core business. So we looked at connectivity technologies, electric technologies, manufacturing technologies. Uh, But one area that was starting to grow was technology to support, at that time, more of a focus on level two autonomous systems, so more driver assist, what you see out in the Super Cruise product today. Um, But that sort of opened my eyes to this whole new area of technology. I then uh, worked on some pretty key uh, deals for GM in the autonomy space, and then moved into strategy to look at go-to-market. And had different thoughts about uh, ways to bring the technology to market and and different ways to honestly just scale like a startup. And uh, so I, I left GM and worked with a professor from the University of Michigan at Olson to spin his technology out from U of M and uh, startup May Mobility. And so talk a little bit about May Mobility because it's sort of, it's not quite what we're going to be spending most of our time on today, which is the full off-road version of autonomous vehicles, but it's also not you know, you're somewhere in between that and a, a Zooks or, or a Waymo or somebody who's trying to build a vehicle that can do all the things that our, my personal vehicle does today. Yeah, so with May Mobility, we were really focused at how do we match what the technology is capable of today with a market demand. And that's where I think you do see a lot of advancement in warehouse robotics, in mining robotics, farming robotics, because where the technology is at It can't quite do every single thing that we as a human driver can do, but it can still do a lot. And so our focus was working at lower speed, and and the company is still focused at working um, on lower speeds. And so working in communities, uh, as as opposed to trying to, you know, connect you 45 minutes across town, town, uh, working in communities and helping to solve first mile, last mile transportation challenges. So we'll come back to 
what the technology can do today and what it cannot and how that relates to all these off-road applications. But before we do, I do think we should spend a minute on just like the level setting on the current state of affairs in autonomous vehicles on the you know main applications on road. Like where, position us. Where are we today? <laughs> uh, we're still looking at where the finish line should be. Um, so you have a lot of companies that have a lot of test fleets out, um, moving people, moving goods. A lot of times there are either engineers in the vehicle or engineers not in the vehicle, but monitoring it very closely, maybe from a following vehicle or things like that. So it's still um, pretty guarded. You do have operations, so Waymo is operating vehicles in the Phoenix area without a safety driver inside of the vehicle. So there are some people that are getting exposure to this type of full self-driving vehicle. That said, when we think about what you or I as a human driver can do, uh, you don't see a lot of autonomous vehicles maneuvering in bad weather. So rain and snow and things like that. So when we talk about, is it ready, you know, for all places all the time, the answer is still no, but we do see people making progress at being able to use the technology in certain situations. And is it that, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around basically what's happening is these companies are driving these vehicles, trying to capture more and more edge cases to bake back into their models until they get to the point that they're satisfied or the regulators are satisfied, I suppose, that the vehicle will perform as you'd want it to in increasingly difficult circumstances, be it driven by weather or, you know, complicated city environments or, or whatever it might be. Like, is, is it just, you know, steady, slow, incremental improvement in that direction for until we reach that mythical finish line? Or are there step function improvements that are still needed? So there's a couple of things at play. One of the things is absolutely being able to see different edge cases. And I think with the data collected or uh, like the system that May Mobility uses from a software perspective is substantially different, but you're, you're seeing different scenarios, you know, getting stuck at a, at a four-way stop, stuff like that. Um, getting that data, there's sort of diminishing <laughs> returns. The more you've been out in the world, the more things you've seen, but you still have to search for those harder scenarios. That work will continue and it's going to take a while. Uh, another issue that is around, frankly, weather. That isn't necessarily an edge case. We can all think of, think of times where you're driving in the rain or driving in the snow. Uh, it's easy to find depending on the time of year. It's fairly predictable. The challenge with weather is that you actually have essentially occlusions that your sensors can't see through. And so that's where step functions and sensors could actually help to accelerate. Uh, wherever we're at in terms of dealing with the variability out on public streets, that's where the edge cases come in. Having those sensors get advanced enough that they can see in poor weather would expand. So at that point, uh, Waymo could probably do more than just Phoenix. So in Phoenix, you're not going to get a lot of rain. You're not going to get a lot of snow. You will get dust storms. Uh, but being able to have a better sensor set would allow Waymo to operate most likely in other climates, uh, which, which would open up what they can do. So those are two, two kind of different aspects of what needs to improve on the technology side. And then from a regulatory side, you, you brought up a good point. We need to figure out how to establish how safe is safe. And that 
uh, historically for vehicles when you're really just looking at physical systems. So how, you know, how do we know that your engine's running properly or that your, your chassis isn't, you know, split apart or your, you know, tires off an axle? You can sense those things and sort of track it down and be able to then work through a specific engineering process to verify, yes, this is safe. Uh, we, we know how to validate um, components in that way. So it's pretty straightforward because we've been doing it for a while. In the case of autonomy, especially when you're using uh, approaches like machine learning, uh, deep learning, those types of statistical representations of what could happen are really powerful for being able to model different situations in the world, help the vehicle quote unquote learn to drive, but then being able to go back and verify why the vehicle did what it did uh, becomes tough. And so industry and regulators need to come together to decide how do we, do we want to just test those things? Do we want to set specific systems engineering requirements um, on how uh, the system should even be developed, where machine learning should be used? Those are the types of conversations that help move us from this early testing and R&D phase into a phase where regulators feel comfortable Companies know what the line is that they have to, or the bar is that they need to meet. And frankly, insurance companies also know what the companies need to do. That is going to be the biggest change that we need to see in order to allow these companies to scale their businesses, to be able to really start having impacts on big impacts on transportation. So you alluded, I think, to a couple of the things that are sort of, that can be fundamentally distinct about what Waymo is trying to do driving on public roads with passengers to what a bunch of these other applications are trying to do in environments like farms or distribution yards or warehouses and things like that. But maybe can you just lay out like what are the what are the characteristics that make these off-road applications different and you know in some ways easier to get to full autonomy in? Yeah, so when we think about uh, what I will call levels of hardness, <laughs> levels of, of difficulty for deploying an AV system. Speed is a big one. That's actually why you see, even for on-road applications, you see you know teams that are working on city driving versus teams that are working on highway driving. Highway driving requires that you may be able, you must be able to see much further down the road to be able to react in time. You know if there's a car stopped or something like that. That's a different engineering challenge than being able to uh, manage yourself in congested traffic. Um, and so when we think about these challenges, speed is a big part of that. Most of the applications that we talk about from an off-road perspective, the vehicles aren't traveling that fast. And when they're not traveling that fast, you don't need to have sensors that are very exotic to be able to see very far away uh, to worry about reaction time. A lot of times when we think about autonomous vehicles, we need to think about how they operate in the world and how they can be safe. If you can slam on your brakes and stop for whatever you know popped up in front of you, you're safe. When you're going slow, it's much, much easier to just hit the brakes, stop the vehicle, reassess what's going on, and then move forward. And that's going to be more acceptable out, you know, in a field. Nobody's going to rear-end you if your tractor stops trying to, to lay seed or uh, to, to help with a harvest. Uh, but if you're in city driving, you will absolutely get rear-ended if you slam on your brakes uh, too quickly and people don't understand, you know, that there's something could be up ahead of fr in front of you. And so that's one of the differences um, in terms of why speed matters. The other aspect 
coming back to this idea that you can just stop is that you can have the sensors you need uh, to be able to see around you. But if there's a, a random animal that came out into a field, or if you're in a mining situation, there's not going to be as many people or those people know where they're supposed to be walking. So there's more regimented uh, understanding of how different things will interact in the environment, which makes it much easier. AVs are great when you have rules and you can implement those types of rules when you're in a more industrial environment. And then what about things like um, running the same route? I mean, this isn't going to be true of all these applications, right? But for things like, for example, tractors, right? They can they can run a the same route over and over and over again. How much benefit does that provide? How much easier in terms of level of hardness? How much does that <laughs> knock you down? Yeah. So so running the same route gives you a couple of benefits. One of them uh, is the map that you need to have. Um, so for cities, for, for cars trying to operate in a city, you need to have every city street mapped. Um, you need to understand the rules of the city street. What's the speed limit? Are there, you know, specific, uh, stop signs, stop lights? You need to have all of that information. Uh, currently, you need to have all of that information before you could drive in the area. There's some like very deep research going on to be able to learn that as you're driving through, but that's, that's not for this conversation. And I don't know enough to be helpful on that one. Um, but when we're thinking about operating on a field or even in a mine where you're doing these repetitive actions, it's a really simple map. You know everywhere that the vehicle needs to go, you know all of its options, you can pre-program it, and that actually simplifies how much information the vehicle needs to be able to pick up about the world around it just to understand where it is and what it should do next. There's sort of, to, to go back, there's two things that every autonomous vehicle needs to do. It's sort of like your eyes and your, and your brain. You know where you wanna go when you're driving, you know which route you're gonna take to get there usually, or you know Siri or Google Maps is telling you as you're driving. Um, but you know your destination, you know there's a route to get there. There's that part of the thought process. And then there's the part of the thought process that reacts to real-time issues. So a, a car double parked in front of you, a child running across the street. Any one of the other applications, you still have to do both things. Um, but like I talked about with the mapping, when it's much simpler, that, that knowing where you're going to go, it just reduces the amount of uh, compute processing that you would need on board the vehicle. Uh, it reduces the, the likelihood of error because you already know know it very well. And if you have access, strong access to GPS, which can be um, a bit testy in terms of its reliability, if you have strong access to GPS, you can get 90% of your work done <laughs> without needing some of these more expensive, more exotic technologies. That sort of you alluded to just there at the end, you know, availability of GPS. I mean, there are some trade-offs with some of these off-road applications where despite all these benefits, it's a little tougher in certain ways. One that I can obviously think of is that, you know, for example, in mining operations, like, you know, those can be out, they can be pretty rural, they can be pretty, pretty distant, you may not have great GPS. Are there others that seem to you to be important and sufficient to, you know, nearly or entirely outweigh the benefits of these off-road benefits in terms of like relative ease for the off-road applications? Um... That's a good question. I think availability of GPS or ability to essentially create a mock GPS, like you can always have a mesh network that the vehicle can kind of triangulate itself within um, that can help with navigation. Um, 
I don't have a great answer of other other trade-offs exactly to to that point. Yeah, it may just actually be a, a lot easier. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like being a, yeah, being able to map and then the fact that you don't have to react to as many possible things that could come up real time uh makes a huge huge difference. And then even if you do have to react, you're moving slowly, it's easier to stop. Presumably you also don't face the same kind of regulatory scrutiny. Like is you know, what's the what's the regulatory or policy landscape like? Say I want to use a bunch of autonomous vehicles in my distribution yard. Can I just do it because it's all within my property? Um, so uh, within property bounds, um, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> and I'm just starting to get into policy, so nobody quote me on this. But generally, within private property, you can operate um, whatever vehicle you choose. Then it becomes an issue of how does that vehicle interact with your employees and things like that. Like that might be the regulatory interface that you need to think about, but it will be less about is this vehicle approved um, because in the U.S., approval of vehicle types is set at the federal level, and that's for operation generally on public roads. Um, so pri- private land, you can you can do a lot. This is the moment of the show where we pause to talk about our sponsors, the folks who bring you this show for free. First, we're brought to you by Trina Solar. With utility-scale solar poised for major growth in coming years, stakeholders need to ensure they're optimizing their projects for better performance. As the next major step forward for the solar industry, Trina Solar introduced the Trina Pro utility solution to make things easier for project developers and EPCs. Trina combines tier one modules, state-of-the-art trackers, and industry-leading inverters for one customized smart solution that improves energy gains while lowering the levelized cost of energy. The first all-in-one solar solution of its kind, Trina Pro increases project reliability, optimizes installation, and ensures overall project value. You can download the free Trina Pro Solution Guidebook and learn more about the benefits of the all-in-one solution in the show notes of this podcast. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Power-related challenges and opportunities are becoming more complex. Reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, they can jeopardize operations, while new technologies like electric vehicles and microgrids offer great potential. Solving these challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, arriving at a conclusion can be uncertain. It's also time-consuming. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence by working with an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options developed specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com slash NWA. We've been talking about this off-road category as if it is one thing, but but there are a, a bunch of pretty distinct different uses that we've talked a little bit about. I'm, I'm curious, um, which of them do you find most interesting from either a technology development perspective or where do you think the biggest impact will come? Like as we think of all these different applications for autonomous electric vehicles, everything aside from driving on roads with passengers in them, what do you find most intriguing? Um, so I, I will admit I uh, have worked 
I've been working with a company called Greenfield Robotics that's working in farm-based robotics focused on row crops and things of that nature. But they're not just taking the approach of automating tractors the way that they exist today, but really upending how you even deploy um, first first products weed management into the into fields. So right now there's usually herbicides, pesticides, or if you're on an organic farm, there's people that literally go around and pick weeds. Um, they've got a fleet of smaller robots that can actually go between the row crops and take out weeds, which would seem not that interesting, but then when you think about the cost of pesticides and the cost of soil maintenance, it becomes really interesting because you no longer have to till uh, to get the weeds to go away and to be able to shift our row crops, which is actually, when when you think of like the, the Midwest, which is where I'm from, you see cornfields, soybean fields, wheat fields, just you're driving through a rural area, you can see them for miles and miles and miles. So it's a lot of area in the U.S. That's, that could be impacted by this, not just approach to the technology, but how it can change the business um, and how we even think about soil management. To be able to go to no-till is, is much bigger than just robotics. And so it's when you see robotics and autonomy used in that way, that's what gets me the most excited. Let's talk about the interplay between autonomous and electric. Um, it, it's not a coincidence that across most of these applications, including the on-road vehicles, there's a pretty high correlation between these vehicles being autonomous and these vehicles being electric. Can you describe why, why that is? First of all, like what is the inherent benefit of, of being an electric vehicle if you're an autonomous vehicle? And then, you know, how you see that playing out in these off-road applications as well? Yeah, so when we think about why electric if you're autonomous, there's there's two things that I think play into that. One is from a business perspective, the cost when we especially when we think about off-road as well as on-road, all of these vehicles right now when we think about fully autonomous vehicles are being deployed in fleet applications. So that's a business trying to think about their bottom line of operating all these machines. EVs are generally simple. They are factually simpler machines. Their um, overall life cycle maintenance costs are much less. Their fuel supply costs uh, tend to vary less as long as you have a good relationship with your local utility. Uh, and so from that perspective, it's a good business decision. So for those providing the AVs just as a, as a product, their, their users like the effect that they're electric because it's easier to, to maintain the fleet and it has a lo lower total cost of ownership. For those that have to, to manage their own fleet, same reason. Um, another aspect that's helpful, not a, not a must-have, but a nice-to-have, uh, when we think about internal combustion engines, vehicles, they actually have transmissions. So I know most people uh, don't drive manual transmission vehicles anymore. I uh, originally was trained on one, but your, your car takes care of it for you. So it automatically shifts as you accelerate and decelerate. And figuring out when to shift on a, on a non-AV vehicle is just a decision of, you know, are we trying to accelerate? How much power do I need? Are you going up a hill? Whatever. It's a, it's a very quote unquote simple algorithm that can be developed sort of two-dimensional. When you add the, eight, the autonomous factor into it and you're trying to think about ride quality, 
that becomes interesting because you're trying to tell the car to speed up, slow down, go a little left, go a little right. Like you're doing a lot more micro controls than we as humans would actually do with a gas pedal or a brake pedal. Uh, and then trying to, to match that to the shift map for uh, the transmission, trying to make sure that you're not jerking people back and forth. It's absolutely doable, but not really necessary, especially in these early days of, of AVs. If you've got a bunch of uh, software engineers that know about battery management because they work in electronics already and they're working on autonomous vehicles, trying to get them to understand engine and transmission shift maps just seems like a, a distraction. So... As we head into these next few years in the development of this market, what, what should we be watching out for? Like, what are the big milestones that are going to tell us how quickly autonomous vehicles will arrive, whether on roads or off roads? Like, what's what's on your radar, so to speak? What's on your lidar? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you need both if you're right, going to see in right, the dark right, and right. through bad weather. You want to have that that redundancy and reliability. Yeah. Um, so I think right now, like. Tractors are already doing this. So, so it's not when is it going to come for like the agricultural mining or mining sectors. This is already happening. It's already happening in warehouses. So, so in those spaces, um, technologies that can help improve the operation, uh, reduce costs are absolutely going to be adopted. But that, that chip in terms of will it be adopted is kind of already sailed. Now it's understanding how to optimize the role that people do play in the system, things of that nature. When we think about on-road, you have both passenger and freight applications. Uh, in freight, there's a distinct um, separation between sort of semi-truck freight versus last mile delivery freight. And so as we look at where things are headed, I think, you know, pre-pandemic, I would have said, continue to watch the, the people transportation space because that's where a lot of the excitement and interest was. Now that we're, we're well into the pandemic, and you know, it's not going away any, anytime soon. Hopefully we'll be alleviated a bit, but that's really shifted to, I think people can appreciate why they may want contactless delivery for their goods as we think about that last mile trip. Uh, there's huge demand for goods, and that huge demand is driving up a huge demand for freight trucks. And we don't, as a nation, have enough drivers to drive those freight trucks. So how can we help um, to augment those drivers and, and, and help with those needs? So I actually think freight is now uh, an area of greater interest. And I think we'll see potentially more innovation starting to scale in that space um, more quickly than we will see in the passenger space. In the passenger space, we have to get people comfortable riding in cars with other people again. Um, most of the operations are looking at some amount of sharing of transportation. Um, and so getting people comfortable with even just not being in their own personal vehicle uh, is going to be an interesting transition. To allow any of these things to scale, to scale and to really impact in industries, we need to see some regulatory clarity. And that, again, is going to require both the companies and regulators to come together because the companies know the technology. There needs to be some information exchange and, and education that takes place. And then there needs to be agreement. How do we establish these bars of how safe is safe enough? And that's what will unlock the ability for, for the on-road applications to really scale. And then final question, I guess that's sort of the flip side of that previous question, like what's your biggest fear? What goes wrong in this market? If people get too far out ahead of their own internal testing and safety, 
Uh, we haven't seen it too much yet in terms of public pushback against the technology out of fear um, for their own personal safety. Um, and I, I, I think in terms of what goes wrong, if we see a number of more incidents that can help turn more of the public to be concerned about the adoption, um, then I think that could slow, slow things down. That said, if there's a lot more incidents, it's not the public's fault. <laughs> Um, they should they should be concerned, and that that's where I think companies really need to be thoughtful about what they're doing from a validation uh, perspective to make sure that these systems are safe. Awesome, Allison. Thank you so much for for being here. Thank you, Shale. It was great to get to catch up. Allison Malik is the executive director of the Commission on the Future of Mobility. She's also the founder and CEO of Middle Third. Uh, I'm Shale Khan. Managing Director at Energy Impact Partners, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.